Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians on the folk scene. So get ready for a deep dive into a life lived through music, in the studio, on the road, and now more than ever, online. If we're lucky, they may even play us a tune and help us figure out what folk music really is all about. Before we get started, a little bit of business. FolkPod is a labor of love, and a whole lot of work goes into every episode. I've heard from a lot of you how much you're enjoying it. So we've put a virtual tip jar up on our website, thefolkpod.com. Please consider leaving us a tip to help pay for the real costs that go into creating this series. There are other ways that you can show your appreciation, too. Like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheFolkPod. And leave us great reviews to help other fans find us. Now, on to this week's guest, David Amram. It's hard to sum up Mr. Amram into one sentence. I would simply say, you should look him up. To start with, he's an American composer, arranger, conductor of orchestral works, as well as jazz. He worked with Aaron Copeland, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, just to name a few. And there are more. His folky-slash-beat-poet side had him working with all the greats, including Pete Seeger and Jack Kerouac, just to name a few. He has composed the music for many films, including The Manchurian Candidate. And in 1966, Leonard Bernstein chose David as his first composer-in-residence for the New York Philharmonic. Or Leonard Bernstein. What is it, David? Is it Bernstein or Bernstein? He always said, Stein, Stein, not Steen, Stein. All right. <laughs> Except for Louis Armstrong was playing at the wonderful Lewiston Stadium, and Leonard Bernstein and his great pontifical Winston Churchill style said, oh, Now, ladies and gentlemen, every time this man touches the trumpet to his lips, the world is more beautiful. Mr. Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong said, Uh-oh. Thank you, Mr. Boinstein. And that was the only time that Leonard Bernstein did not correct people when they said Bernstein. Stein, Stein. Louis Armstrong. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, David Amram. It's so amazing to have you. Thank you for being here. Cheryl, thank you. And I want to say to your listeners that I never realized you were the president when we were doing all those wonderful programs for NERFA until your very last year when they said you weren't the president anymore. (laughs) And frankly, you're the only ex-president I know, aside perhaps from Jimmy Carter, that I've ever heard where people still miss you, love you, and appreciate you. And you're a great musician and a joy to play with because you listen and you make everyone else feel good and make them play better. And that's the whole key in music, to listen, to be part of the whole. And you exemplify that. Before we ever spoke and I heard you play, I said, wow, there's somebody playing who's actually enhancing the music rather than trying to blow up the stage and and tear up the world at the expense of the moment. Well, thank you so much. You're very kind. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, folks, we met at the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, where David's been hanging out for the last 10 years because we had your... 80th birthday party there. That may have been the year you were included in the wisdom of the elders. You've been coming to that conference, which I was the president for for six years. 
And you've been coming to those conferences and you've been hanging out with the young musicians, soaking it all up. We've been soaking you all up. We kind of feel like you're ours for that weekend. And it's just an honor to have you there and a blessing and just what you bring to the young people and, and the fact that you like to jam with them and listen to them and encourage them is just an incredible thing. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I wanted to mention for your listeners at one time, I was a young people's myself and I hung out with other young people and older people. And all those older people, or many of them, in folk music, in jazz, in Latin music, in Native American music, and what I would call global roots music, and believe it or not, symphonic music would take me under their wing. And they could see I was young, enthusiastic, respectful, and desperate, and mm -hmm. wanted to do more and pursue dreams I was told were a waste of time and ah, impossible. No kidding. Wow. And they said, hey, man, try this. Let me show you this chord. I always got a little encouraging word. Or they would just say hello and not say, get out of my face. You can't help my career trajectory because you're beneath me. So you are invisible. I respect people who feel that way because that's the way we're all brought up to be winners and dump on everybody. However, I found graciousness. But by the time I realized I've been following a career death wish my entire life. It was too late because I've been having such a great time and I'm a much better composer and I think a better parent and better citizen and a happier person because of the fact that I purposefully hung out with people who knew more than me and respected them and then tried in turn to share what was bequeathed upon me for nothing as part of my payment to the University of Hangoutology, for which I'm a lifetime freshman scholarship student. And since I can't give any tuition to all those people who are now in the great jam session in the sky, the way I can repay them is by trying to pass on a fraction of what was bequeathed upon me. Nobody does it better than Mr. David Amram. And it's fun. Well, that's it. You have so much fun. I have to tell you, folks, we've talked about this NERFA conference and these Folk Alliance conferences on other shows. By now, people who've never been can understand that it's basically a weekend of artists showcasing for people who book musicians. But it's also a chance to jam in the hallways at night. And I can tell you that David is the last man standing every year, every night. Everybody's gone to bed and David is still playing with whoever will still be up jamming. And it's just the best thing. And I love watching that. That's one of the reasons why I love going to these events is to track you down and then watch you jam with these kids. It's incredible. It's incredible. I have to ask you, there's some things that I just don't know about you. Like when you knew that music was what you wanted to do and how young were you when you actually picked up your first instrument and what instrument was that? Well, I started off, I lived in Feasterville, Pennsylvania, after my folks moved from my grandmother's house in Philadelphia to Florida for a year where my sister was in bad health. So we lived there in Pasigrilla, where I went to the first grade and danced in a wonderful production of the Waltz of the Flowers played by the Great Depression Orchestra, which was an old Victrola. Really? Aww. And I realized that Dancing was not my forte, even though I've got a picture of me. <laughs> so when I was in the second grade, I was in public school at a place called Southampton, Pennsylvania, because Feasterville was so tiny. It was 200 people wow. counting the cattle. And my uncle, who was a merchant seaman, 
who loved all the places in the world he'd been and told me these great stories, took me to hear the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I heard Leopold Stokowski in 1940 himself conducting. He didn't have an associate wow. conductor. Himself. He conducted the kids' concert because he dug young people because he was still a young person inside of an old person's body, which is, I guess, my case and everybody who's hmm. still alive when they reach this part of the speedometer. So there I was seeing this guy all dressed up doing Peter and the Wolf, and it was a killer. And I thought to myself, boy, someday, somehow, because I still hoped I'd be a successful farmer, <laughs> maybe I could get off the farm and go to a concert, uh, okay. somehow could even write something that some orchestra like that might play. And sure enough, 40-some years later, his successor, Eugene Ormandy, conducted the premiere of my Trail of Beauty, which was based on Navajo prayers, Native American nations, different nations, writings, and some traditional music, and of course, 90% of what I wrote myself. So that was a dream come true because my uncle also had spent time with indigenous people in South America when he would get off the ships. And my other uncle who married my father's sister was from Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Las Vegas, Nevada, Las Vegas, New Mexico. His dad had a junkyard and he was brought up in a neighborhood with all Native American folks. And he used to tell me all the wonderful music and stories and things that he learned. And then my final thing was I mowed the lawn for Wally Freed on Bustleton Pike right across from our farm. And he said, David, I know you like that music stuff and the school's letting you have a trumpet to play. We're going to have a cowboy music concert. They didn't call it country music. There was a cowboy music concert and you can come and hear it. After I mowed the lawn <laughs> and the old farmers let me in their select circle so I could hear them talking, which was a college education every minute in itself. I bet. <laughs> so I saw these guys and they had on the big, huge Warner Brothers type sombreros <laughs> and spurs and chaps, which you don't need to play music. But they looked just like <laughs> yeah. the people that I used to see on those Saturday matinees of the singing cowboys. Yep. And they were singing, I wonder now who shot my cow, my dog went by, wow, somehow, wow. I said, oh, man. <laughs> I'm right in the heart of Texas, which I didn't even know about, except I knew it was yeah. west of Feasterville. So at the very end, I thought, man, here are these authentic cowboys. I got to go check these guys out. So I snuck up and being nine years old, it wasn't that hard to creep around because I was so little. <laughs> and one of them said, Angelo, what time's that train to get back to South Philadelphia? <laughs> The other guy said, I don't know if anybody would hurry up. We don't want to miss him. Wally said the next day, how'd you like that concert, Dave? I said, well, Mr. Freed, it was wonderful. But when I was with those cowboys and they were talking, they sounded different than they did when they were singing. <laughs> they sounded like Philadelphians. <laughs> I said, they sounded like guys from South Philly. Yeah. And he said, you got that right. They come up on the train. They rent the horses for a dollar. They bring up their saddles and their chaps and their spurs and their guitars. And then when they pass that tambourine around to get some money, they take that home and they feed their families for a week. I said, wow. Were you disappointed or inspired? No, it made me realize, because I had no framework, that if you love something enough 
and devote yourself to it like those guys did. Good boy, they could sing up a storm and play great. You can become that if you put in the time and the effort. So I realized that you can not only take what you're born into, but you can take what other people are born into. And if you approach that with enough respect and devotion, you'll never be that, but you can learn to become enough of that to represent that or have that be part of your vocabulary. And that's why John Hammond Jr. was able to go out and sing the old time blues and kill it. And he's a Vanderbilt hmm. heir. Yeah. Pete Seeger was a Mayflower descendant <laughs> who could sing all those musics that he loved and revered. And he always credited those who taught it to him. And Ramble and Jack Elliott, a.k.a. Elliot Adnapose from Manhattan hmm. Beach, New York, literally became a vessel yeah. for the old cowboy style to the point where he can really do that stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the old cowboy associations ask Jack to come to sing what they're doing. And a wonderful flute player, Mr. Zorn, he can play the music from India so well that the people from India ask him to come there to play stuff that they've forgotten. Mm. And Gilles Lozier, whom you might remember who's from Canada, when I was <laughs> conducting the Montreal Symphony, the piano tuner came I said, man, that guy looks like Gilles Lozier. They said, it is he. I said, I didn't know he's a piano tuner. They said, that's how he makes his living. He got asked to the Balkan music festivals to come and play. That's how great he did that music from the other side of the world. And Jean Carignan, the late great violinist, yep. was a cab driver. Yeah. And he said, Dave, I never give up my own four cabs. I lease three out, but I always drive the other one. Because I oh. never know if I can make a living at the music I love. Oh, you met him? Oh, he used to come to the Mariposa Festival. And oh. I just reinforced what I found in classical music. And then when I met Charlie Parker, he loved Stravinsky and he loved Bach. And he loved folk music, and he loved Middle Eastern music mm. and church music. He loved just about anything and everything, and painting and music. These were people mm. of all different genres, all of whom appreciated the roots, and they weren't anthropologists or slumming. <laughs> they realized that beauty is beauty, and that there are many languages and each language has a hundred different ways of speaking it, but that there are many languages of that thing called music, and it's a lifetime study to learn any of them right. It is. So maybe you can specialize in one or two, but you can appreciate the others, and you should be able to feel at home in all of them. And the way to do that is to listen. <laughs> they asked Duke Ellington, you know, what's your advice, Duke, to young musicians? He said, listen. Yeah. And that's the whole key. And you do that. That's why I love playing with you. Well, thank you. And I found what I heard Merle Haggard. I said, good God, man, his band, that sounded like the Budapest String Quartet. Those guys were so together. <laughs> and in Spanish, they say, ser en conjunto, to be together. That's the whole key. So you studied classical, I assume, because you studied composing. Oh, sure. When did you get the feel for jazz? 
For jazz, it was the same thing. I was listening to the big bands of Benny Goodman and Ziggy Elman and being Jewish. I said, man, there's a Jewish trumpet player. He can play his can off. And I used to hear the old Big Spiderbeck records. And then my dad sold the farm in 1942. We moved from a 160-acre farm into what was then, in 1942, called a checkerboard neighborhood. That was Washington, D.C., which was where black and white folks lived in the same blocks, even though mm. we were officially segregated by law in the nation's capital until 1952. But everybody hung out with each other anyway. And I was surrounded by this incredible oh. music all the time and played and hung out and played games and sports with different people in my neighborhood and learned a lot about that music. And then when I was 12 years old, I went to a party for kids and they hired a band. His name was Lewis Brown. And I found out later he was Duke Ellington's mentor. <laughs> This is 1942. And he said, you all right, son? He said, I want you to come play with my band at the Elks Club. So he said to my mother, he said, well, I'm going to bring your boy and bring his trumpet. And she said, well, as long as he doesn't drink or smoke. No, no. He said, I'll give him a dollar and some ice cream. And sure enough, he took out the dollar in advance and said, I'll buy him some ice cream, which he did. He showed me how to be a band leader. Oh, Wow. So trumpet was your first instrument. That's what I picked up in, in public school, even during the Depression. All the kids could get an instrument and take it home and try to learn how to play it. So I went there with the trumpet. And just when I was sitting, waiting for my chance to be with Mr. Brown, some of the older guys said, hey, he said, you got to sit up straight if you want to play the music. And they said, now nah, you got to do diaphragmatic breathing. I never knew about that stuff. But I didn't have to go to Juilliard because they showed me. Wow. What an education. This, I'm assuming, was an all African-American band, I'm going to assume. Oh, yeah. This was segregated Washington. And everybody cheered. I was like being at a revival. It was incredible. I'll never forget it. Uh -huh. And they cheered after I played. And Mr. Brown said, that's my son. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> screamed with laughter. <laughs> but it was so beautiful. And he said to me, someday you might be like Carmen Cavaliero. He was the great, famous movie star, society piano player. What an education. You know something, Cheryl? The great thing is it continues because once you realize you're a lifetime student in the University of Hangoutology, you can understand and respect all the delineations and the mental limitations of those who organize different stuff mm. and yes. Be grateful for those who organized different things, like the great Estelle Klein, who made the Mariposa Festival. All of us who were there realized, wow, that's the way to take your knowledge and present it in a way that makes other people become studious and feel at home and feel eager and learn from mm -hmm. one another. And I kept bumping into people like that. I met Pete Seeger when I was 17. My mother took me to a Henry Wallace rally. Henry Wallace was a mm -hmm. terrific singer, guitar picker himself. He was running for president on a progressive ticket. And I saw this guy playing with him. I said, Mom, what's that instrument? He said, David, that's called a banjo. I said, oh. So then... I saw the banjo player walk out into the audience and start hanging out with everybody. I said, good Lord, I got to meet that guy. And I knew him up until just about 
three hours before he passed away, a group of us, of Guy Davis Jr. came, and a wonderful singer also came, and we played for Pete. And wow. suddenly Guy said, let's have some levity. I was trying to play real soft and not be in the way or anything. And he played that fantastic song about the fox, where he sort of like the fox hunter, and Pete started tapping his foot. You're kidding. And we said, wow. And it was just so... So nice to be able to play for him. And I went home. And then John Cohn, an old friend of mine, a wonderful banjo player himself who married Penny Seeger, oh, yeah. also was the sound man for Pull My Daisy. He took that famous picture of us with Kerouac. John was really something else. Anyway, he called up. He said, David, Pete just passed away. And I said, no. I said, I was just with him two hours ago. They said, well, he's gone. And I realized how lucky I was to meet him in 1948 <laughs> and know him up until a few hours before he passed on. And... He and his wife, Toshi especially, were so incredible in introducing some of that beautiful world music. Yes. I put all that together and realized when Harvard asked me to write a piece for their wind orchestra, I said, man, I'm going to take that old, beautiful folk song. Maybe I could use that. I learned that when I got the Hulu <laughs> in Chengdu, China, and I learned how to play... Beautiful. I was with T-shirt Kathy Wolseley. We love T-shirt. A lot of people remember she worked for Arlo for years selling his T-shirts and just a great friend to all musicians. And mm -hmm. she was at Okima, Oklahoma at the Woody Fest. And I was playing in some little dinky place. And they had two pianos there. So Rat said, come on, man, I'm play some duets. So we were wailing away. She happened to come down there. Two years later, she said, David... You and Rad should play together. If you're going to be in Florida and he can come down, I'm doing a concert for school kids and have you guys come down. So sure enough. What a treat. Rad came down. We were sitting and I said, you know, Rad, I've got that wonderful tune. Maybe I could write out some chord changes and have it be, you know. Something like that. Hmm. He said, 
oh, he said, let's try it. So I wrote out some chord changes. Then he played it. You know, Radovich Lorkovic, man, he's oh, I do. a terrifying monster, great killer musician of all time. Like yourself makes everybody else sound 20 times better. <laughs> I said, man, that's really something. Then when I went to Harvard, I saw Pete Seeger's picture up where we were doing the concert with the symphony. Pete had only gone there for a year. Then he decided to do his postgraduate education before he finished his freshman year at Harvard and went out on the Woody Guthrie University of the Road and mm -hmm. blessed us all ever since then. So I had finished the first movement and I said, we'd like you to do this whole piece. I said, you know, I'm going to use a great folk song that's been in the back of my mind all my life. And seeing Pete's picture made me think of that. So when the Harvard Wind Symphony plays the piece, I'm not going to be playing the Hulusse. I'm not going to be giving a lecture. I'll be like an invisible fly on the wall. <laughs> but the whole second movement, which I hope will be something that stands on its own, will use a great folk song, The Wayfaring Stranger. And I'm going to mention the name of it and where I learned it and who taught it to me, which I do even if I use two bars of a percussion pattern. I always try to credit those who showed me what it was. So if I have a Dumbek pattern like the Taksim. Yep. Or if I'm using an Afro-Cuban rhythm with the clave. Then the second one. Or the piece that the <laughs> Dallas Symphony is going to be playing, where in the last movement, I used the rumbo Ooh. pattern, which is uh, 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 one and two, one and two. And the oompa, 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 boom, etc. I try to always put in where I learned it from and try to write it down on paper correctly so that the roots will be there. Not because I'm a guilt-ridden white liberal, <laughs> but because it's only decent. Copyright laws say it's public domain. The laws of basic decency hmm. are to thank those who gave you a gift. Amen. It's not that hard to say thank you. And if you're a lifelong devoted rip-off artist, disrespectful thief and creep, people can tell that. And when they see you showing up on the scene, they say, hide the silverware. <laughs> it gets around folk festival people. I'm not saying that to be dismissive of people who act in disreputable ways like thieves and crooks, because we're brought up to think that's the way to be a great success and business person is to screw everybody else. The reality is that might in certain circumstances, be acceptable, and many people might even feel that's admirable. However, mm -hmm. music is such a beautiful world to be in, and it's so mysterious, we never even know what it is. And just like religion and spirituality, that's something you never really understand, but you know it's there. It's bigger than all of us. And that's a very comforting thing mm. to realize that you don't have to be the top dog and Mr. or Ms. know-it-all. Right. All you can do is to try to be a good student while you're here 
and pass some of that good stuff on and share your blessings with others. And it's not that hard to do. It's not. And you have much more fun. And remember Duke Ellington's great other mantra, aside from listen, don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Well, that's the thing. Your music always has that swing. Most classical musicians don't get into jazz and other things like that. I mean, you said that you have a big interview in the morning about your time with Thelonious Monk. Where did you guys meet and how did that happen? I was playing with Charles Mingus at the Cafe Bohemia, big hayseed coming to New York in 1955. Again, these were people I dreamed maybe I would even get to meet. I had met Dizzy at 51 in Washington, D.C. when he came by and crashed at my place in Charlie Parker in 1952. <laughs> and they gave me such an inspiration that when I was in the 7th Army Symphony, I continued playing jazz and wanting to be a composer and trying to write and lived in Paris for a year and met a lot of the people, including Dizzy, when they came through. But when I was playing with Mingus, it was just a fluke. Leonard Feather took me down to hear Bud Powell, and Mingus was his bass player. And Mingus came over to Leonard's <laughs> table because Leonard, at that time, one of the few critics that appreciated what was happening in an extraordinary, sophisticated way. And Leonard said, oh, this is Dave Amram. I heard him play when he was in the Army. He plays jazz French horn, and he's a terrific young cat. Mingus looked at me and said, will you go on the road with me for $125 a week? Hmm. I think if I said yes, he probably would have punched me in the mm -hmm. mouth. But I said, well, I'd like to, Mr. Mingus, I've admired you, but I'm in the Manhattan School of Music on the GI Bill, and I'm studying species counterpoint and harmony and music theory. He said, you'll learn more with me on the bandstand than you ever will in the school. Wow. So sure enough, he helped me to go to the union and be allowed to play, even though I had a six-month waiting period, because the only other person they could get was Julius Watkins, who was phenomenal, but he was busy. And Junior Collins was great, but he was in jail. So I looked out. <laughs> there I was playing with Mingus and with all the heavyweights. Willie Jones, a great drummer, yeah. said, Dave, Monk's here, and he digs your playing. I almost fainted. I said, good lot. I've never even thought I would hmm. be in the same room with Monk, and he liked what I was doing. So I came up. And he said, hey, he said, you all right, let's get together. And I was speechless. He said, give me your number. So he took out this little tiny address book and all the little pages had meticulous handwriting that he had, but they were all like in different directions. Sure enough, he called up, walked up the six flights of my crash place between Avenue B and C Oof. on 8th Street. And in 1955, that was not a chic place. It was called the Lower East Side. <laughs> yeah. Then it became the East Village after right, the real right. estate speculators threw everybody out that lived there before. <laughs> I'll never forget. I said, you know, Thelonious Harvey Cropper, the great African-American painter, turned me on to that beautiful off minor that you wrote. And he said, I, I wanted to learn that, but everybody that plays it plays different, but none of them sound like how you play it. And he said, they should have asked me. <laughs> and he yeah. sat down and he wrote out the chord changes, the way he played them, everything, just meticulous. Oh, can't even imagine. Dizzy did that once for Tin Tin Day. We said, no, Dave. He said, here's the basics, the way I wrote it. Now you can make your own embellishments on what I wrote. You got permission from the man himself. Exactly. When I go to the folk festivals and with folk musicians, as the younger players especially, they already know so much and... They can all go on YouTube hmm. 
and see not all, all these great young geniuses. But all the old cats. They could see the old cats. And I'm seeing old cats, even though I'm one myself, that I grew up and worshipped, including my contemporaries. And finally, see what the heck they're doing and understand and play it yeah. four or five times and see them when they were in Europe and Asia. I went down a little rabbit hole myself and found some of your old stuff, some old things on YouTube and you and Dizzy Gillespie. That's incredible. Wasn't that some fun? I was just so lucky. He just had this amazing grin on his face, like he was really digging what you were doing. Well, you know, when he met me when I was 20 years old, he came and spent a whole night in my basement apartment. His whole band crashed out. He <laughs> took the big chair and I slept on the floor. <laughs> and he spent the whole night giving me the whole history of what he called the diaspora of African peoples all around the world and how they took something from every country that they had visited and left something to every country they had visited. And he said, you know, everybody has a heritage. And he said, everyone has a precious heritage. And we're all taught in America to ignore that. You got to learn more about your Jewish heritage, the spiritual part and the cultural part as a wandering person and appreciate everyone else's. And I found out that once you do that, then when you're in a culture that you're not born into, people won't say, hey, they're just coming here to steal our stuff because they hate themselves. And that's the beautiful thing about folkloric music. That's the unwritten expression of history. And it's just so beautiful and moving. Mm. I was just watching Renee Fleming singing. Maureen Forrester was singing this old folk song. And boy, she really got into it in a classical way. And the guy accompanying her, he was like Radovich. He knew just what to play and what not to play, even though it was written out. And when Renee Fleming sang, it was so soulful. I said, wow, that's just like Caruso and Maria Callas and all those other people. They transcend the constipation, <laughs> bad vibe, penitentiary vibes of what classical music is yeah, forced yeah. 
to be. Isn't that a shame? But now those great patrons whose husbands are forced to <laughs> donate money, <laughs> that's not the scene anymore. So now the musicians are beginning to create their own environment where they can just have the music speak for itself. And all of us learn that from people that are playing folkloric music. Yeah. And singer-songwriters can see, since there's no billion-dollar music industry <laughs> whipping everybody into a frenzy before they're dumped into the landfill, everybody has to be more indie. People said, oh, what a catastrophe here. You are almost 90 years old. You're playing a house concert. How pathetic. I said, how about Beethoven, Mozart, and Brahms? Some of their greatest music was what the Germans call Kammermusik, chamber music, music for people's houses. Chopin was a noted party piano player among the French aristocracy and made a good living doing that. And apparently, in his letters, it was hard for him to write those magnificent piano pieces. Thank heavens that he did. Yeah. And Bach was a famous improviser, but thank heavens he wrote some of the stuff down on paper. And talk about swinging. The Brandenburg Concertos, woo, look out. Mm. And also the Goldberg Variations, he uses a hunting song and a drinking song in the middle of all that. Mm. Not because he ran out of ideas or got paid to do that. He just wanted to put something in there to show what he dug when he was sitting at home. And when they wrote Rando a la Turca, Mozart wrote one too. Those Turkish bands used to go once a year, and both Mozart and Beethoven, both of them ended up writing something based on that Turkish band music because it meant something to them. I love that style. And that doesn't mean that our job is to orchestrate folk music because, frankly, folk music and jazz doesn't need any Hollywood plastic surgery to make it appealing or relevant. In fact, nothing does. Yeah. And that's to understand the thing of, it needs some wake done when I worked in Hollywood. That was my next question. What was it like to write scores for movies? I enjoyed it. But then I realized later on, the people that I was working for, that I was lucky enough by a series of flukes, just like the way I met Pete Seeger, the way I met Dizzy Monk, everybody, Dimitri Metropolis, the great conductor, all these people. Bernstein and ended up with the composer in residence with the Philharmonic. Just a fluke. And in terms of the film, I'd never been to Hollywood before when I was doing The Young Savages. I said, man, that was a famous old movie composer coming to all my sessions with the producer. I said, wow, this guy must dig my music. What an honor. Then I was told by the concertmaster, no, man, that's standard procedure out here. I said, what do you mean? He said, that guy's hired to be your cover, so if you get fired, he'll continue where you left off. You're kidding. I said, whoa. And I orchestrated my own music and conducted it and chose the concertmaster. I almost got killed for that. Oh. And I did the Manchurian Candidate, and I did just as much loving care as when I was writing a symphony or trying to play anything I would do, you know. Whether I'm playing at Attica Prison or the White House, I try to do my best every time, like we all do.
they said, well, we'd like you to do seven scores in one year. I said, good Lord, this was 1962. I would have been a millionaire then. Hmm. And I said, you know, I can't write that much good music, orchestrate it, conduct it, choose the players, and do a good job. Because that's what yes. I was trained to do is living on a farm. When I mentioned the word good job, I could see a look of disgust and revulsion on everyone's faces who were making me this great officer. So then they said, well, that's why you have your ghostwriters and your orchestrators. I said, I don't use ghostwriters and I don't use orchestrators. I orchestrate my own music and I write my own music. I'm a composer. Then they looked at me like, he needs mental help. <laughs> I somehow, thank God, realized if I fell for that, as tempting as it was, if I were lucky, five years later, they'd get sick of me and I'd be the ghostwriter for the next David Amram. So <laughs> I left. I went back to my $85 a month apartment <laughs> and I continued oh, wow. what I'm doing now. And my lawyer was furious. He said, you're going to do all that stuff later. I said, man, <laughs> there is no later. Charlie Parker said it best. He said, now's the time. Yeah. So I only mention that when you're advised by your career counselor to give it up, pack it in. There's no demographics. There's no audience. You're wasting your time. Hang out with somebody else. And secondly, my hope is, Cheryl, when I go to those mm -hmm. conferences and stuff, if people are receiving the same advice of how much they suck before they even get started, say, well, there's a guy 90 years old still grateful and happy to be doing it. Maybe if it's that healthful, I'll give it two more years anyway. And if that happens, then I will have made a contribution. And basically, yeah. that's what we're here to do. So people said, you've had a very checkered career. I said, I never expected a career. I hope someday my music has a career. Big difference. And while you're here... I think it's important to enjoy it and share what little blessings you have with others. And you learn from everybody once you realize you're in the University of Hangoutology. Amen. Aren't we lucky? You know it. And we should let other people know if they choose that impossible road just to go ahead and do it. Pursue those career death wishes to the max. Yeah. If you think you were put here to do something, then do it. And the handful of experts who tell you what you can't ever be have a constitutional right to do that. And they might love you and even be related to you and be really smart, <laughs> well-educated. And you can't argue with them. But you just realize if you feel you were put here to do something, find a way to do it. What you do to pay your rent and your value as an artist and a person have nothing to do with each other. And in our society, what you deserve and what you get have nothing to do with one another. Hmm. But you can try to do a good job and you can try to be a decent person. And that's not that hard. And that's very rewarding. But you can't prove that on a bank statement or any way except yeah. by the kind of person that you try to become. And then being privy to being with other people who are more that way. Yeah, we're very lucky that we get to hang out with some of the most amazing people on the planet. You're one of them. I actually have a question. That I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this, but do you like conducting an orchestra or would you prefer to play? I love them both. And my joy in conducting is to have the best seat in the house mm -hmm. 
and to try to create a good atmosphere so that the players feel they can express themselves and get into the music and let the music take over. And to do that, you have to know the music inside out, be there when you're needed. And when those magical moments start happening and 800 people all get together, somehow like a hundred brain surgeons, everybody's so darn good. And they all start playing together. Woo. It's unbelievable. And at that point, you're supposed to stay out of the way All right. and let it happen. And that's the hardest thing to learn because the whole way conducting this franchise is the Achtung, you Schwein, I am the Fuhrer, <laughs> and you are my typewriter keys. And that's the way they merchandised the art of conducting. Now, I'm happy to say when the Dallas Symphony, which is a big orchestra, is going to play my piece I'm fortunate, thank God, the cellist who's the soloist told me they have this great 27-year-old woman conductor. And he said, you know, man, she is terrific. And she's just 27 years old. This is her last year as assistant. And I said, wow, isn't that great? Because that'll be someone who is not spoiled Mm -hmm. into becoming a monster. I've watched you conduct online on some old footage, and I noticed you're a less is more kind of conductor. You go from, you know, conducting at Carnegie Hall or conducting at any famous concert hall to attending folk festivals. And I know you love doing it because it shows. But I have a funny thing to ask you. We all know and love our friend Sonny Oaks, right? Oh, boy, the best. Tell me the truth. What's it like to play at a folk festival knowing that Sonny Oaks is your stage manager? Well, She's one of the only people on the planet who, when she's in charge of any event, starts on time and ends on time. She was shocked when I would do programs for her. And she said, David, you came in three seconds. How do you do that? I said, well, Sonny, I watched the clock. And when I conducted the Toronto Symphony all those years, if I went three seconds overtime, the whole orchestra would almost go bankrupt. So I always had a strategy of being able to end the piece when necessary and not do the piece. And I said, I learned that discipline a long time ago. Hmm. And I realized Dizzy Gillespie said, you know, man, in my band, he said, all the cats, I love them like they're my own family, but you know, you got to be on time. And he said, the first time you get a warning, The second time you get a last warning told that if you miss it the third time, you're going to get your week's pay and never work with me again. And sure enough, eccentric as maybe some of the players would appear to be when they were playing with Dizzy, everybody showed up. And I love the symphony because everybody shows up on time or gets there a little early. They start on time and they end on time. And that's a good idea. It is. And for a folk festival too, all kidding aside. The only time I've ever been nervous was when we did a Phil Oaks tribute and Sonny gave us all the material and she was sitting there (laughs) knowing the words of every single thing. So whenever I do my Phil Oaks songs, the two that I do, I always put the words, even though I use my own music most of the time, which I used to do with Phil. He didn't care as long as he got the words right. Really? Uh, When I played When I'm Gone, I thought, oh my Lord, Sonny's there and Mm -hmm. Seeger's family was there and they said, nah, we love it. And the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone. My pen won't pour out the lyric line when I'm gone. So I guess I'll 
bracing air when I'm gone. And I can't worry about my cares when I'm gone. Won't be asked to do my share when I'm gone. Sonny said, that's great, man. Phil would love it. I said, well, you know, I played with him just a week before he died at Folk City. I was sitting in and he invited me to come over and he was feeling real depressed. And he liked that. Hmm. But I really got the words correct. And Sonny was sitting there with every word. So if you change one word or were unintelligible. She knows. She would (laughs) tell you maybe you could do it correctly. (laughs) She's the best. I admire her so much. And she's so much fun. And she's not only devoted to Phil, but she's devoted to music and to the people who make the music. Yes, she is. She's a good friend and I adore her. And I miss her now because I haven't seen her in over a year. You've known Eric Anderson for a long time. And when I was playing with Eric a couple of years ago in Manhattan, we did a show together. And I believe your son, Adam, was playing percussion. I was playing percussion. Wasn't that great? Oh, wasn't that fun? He loved playing with you, too, because he said, she listens. That's very sweet. <laughs> he does, too. I'm so proud of him because instead oh, of yeah. bashing out or saying, ah, my father, <laughs> he's not a spoiled brat. He knows music's a big thing, and we're part of that big thing. Yeah. It was a great night of poetry and just all kinds of stuff. Oh, wasn't that fun? Yeah. Eric's just extraordinary. And he's also one of the best read people on the planet. He is. They did a thing called Rolling Stone Book of the Beats. And some of the stuff that he wrote was like incredible. He's one of my favorite writers. He could be like Mr. PhD scholar. It's incredible. Yeah. He's very well read and incredibly bright and a beautiful writer and especially lyrics and Putting the music together. Oh, his songs are incredible. Yeah. We have some old stuff on YouTube, got 40 years ago at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Yeah, I've seen that. You can call me the busker with the songs in my sack, with my guitar in hand and the drum on my back. I'm singing your subways, your trolleys and pubs. I'm a street singer and I do it for love. I'm a street singer, I'm your singing man. Gather round the tables, form a little band Take a hat to the streets and do the best that you can The people who pass by, well, they all have a lot The one thing they don't have is the freedom you've got The one thing they don't have is the freedom you've got I am a street singer and I sing for my keep For the people who pass by my way on the street I sung my way from London to France, New York to Frankfurt, and all the way back. New York to Frankfurt, and all the way back. And call me the busker with the songs in my sack, my guitar in hand, and the drum on my back. I'm singing your subway to trolleys and trams. I'm a street singer, and I'm proud that I am. I'm a street singer, I'm your singing man. 
has so much fun it is. just to play with him. And he's one of those people that makes you inspired and try to do better. And, yep. you know, traveling to different countries makes you appreciate the beauty of America and Canada, too. I'll never forget going to trail when I went with the Vancouver Symphony on tour. We finally went to the wonderful reserve way up in Yellowknife. Hmm. And they never had a symphony orchestra. And we went, boom, 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 boom. And there was a sound, oh, shit. Boom, 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 boom. Yay! <laughs> but the people, they'd never heard the symphony. And they reacted to that. You conducted the Montreal Symphony. I'm from Montreal. And so you've conducted the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. When did you do that? I was there for eight years. J'étais le dirigeant invité pour le concert pour la jeunesse à Salle Wilfred Pelletier. Ah, Wilfred Pelletier. Yes. I loved every second of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful hall to see music in. And we even had a Jean Carignan piece where one of his protégés played the piece oh. on the traditional old violin. Wow. We did a lot of the music of other French-Canadian composers and Mozart and Beethoven, and we did my Thelonious Monk, only yep. one of the few pieces I've ever orchestrated, a monk's baia, and my horn concerto and a lot of other th stuff. And wonderful Lewis Ballard, a Native American composer. We did a lot of really terrific music. I was there for eight years doing the matinees, they called them, for, for La Jeunesse. And Canada is so amazing. And I've been blessed to travel all over yeah. the country in different places there and seeing how each place has its special thing. It does. Now they've discovered Dynomo bars. I'm mispronouncing it. <laughs> you did? There you go. I'm going to make sure you get some. Oh, boy. For sure. And for people who are worried about their high sugar, you forget about the worries and just chomp one of those. You'll feel good for you. Yeah, well, come on. At this point. When they say to die for, it's worth dying for. I never had one. I said, oh, I better not eat that. And I said, man, I better eat that. Yeah. Was that ever good? Yeah, you have to. You'll insult the Canadians around you if you don't have an Anima bar. There's places all over the world that are beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And you can meet people from all over the world through music. So it's worthwhile. So for all of your listeners who play music, keep on picking. That's it. Exactly. And for those of you who are parents and grandparents, which is my era now, encourage those young cats and kitties yeah. to continue what they're doing and go to their gigs and hang out with them because we need them more than they need us. And you can get a lot out of it. And in the music, you're never too old or too young. The music is the star. That's what's so nice about it. I love it. David, thank you so much for being a guest on Folk Pod. It's just been an incredible honor, a lot of fun. Where can people find out more about you? Well, you can go on my website if you could stand it. It's <laughs> called <laughs> davidamram.com. Oh, excuse me. I was, I was so excited hearing about there's it. There's a lot of great information on there. Yeah. Check out the video links, people. I mean, there's a lot of things to find out about. There's a picture of me conducting the Houston Symphony when I looked like I was soaring off into outer space a long time. Now I try to be more <laughs> refined. But anyway, there's a part to the left that says selected videos because I have about 5,000 things on YouTube. Right. And sometimes there's someone screaming a poem about how much they hate their mother and how much society sucks. And I'm in the phone booth, you know, playing penny whistle. And those I don't particularly yeah. want to leave for posterity. Yeah. But of the 5,000 things, there's about 60 or 70 that are really good. Yeah. And those are on my selected YouTube sites. Yeah. And the nice thing is you can check them out. And if you find you're bored, you can turn them off. And I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, folks, you will not turn it off. Trust me. That's awesome. Thank you, David.
Uh, my hope is if, if it encouraged anybody listening, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, or a student, or you want to play, or you're a grandparent that wants to get the old banjo or guitar or accordion out of the closet and make a comeback, you're never too old as long as you're inhaling and exhaling. There's so much we didn't even get a chance to talk about your time with Jack Kerouac on all kinds of things. We might just have to ask you back to the show sometime. It would be my treat, and I just send you and all your listeners my love. We'll all just celebrate the music and thank heavens the plague is coming out and we can all somehow find a way to get together. Well, I wish you all the best in health and in music and in everything that you've got going on and all your writing. And it's inspiring. It's exciting. And we are all very lucky to have you in our lives. So thank you so much, Mr. David Amram. And I thank you, Cheryl, and all blessings and hooray for music. Yeah. Thank you. Well, improvising, just surviving. That's what it's all about. And since Cheryl Proctor asked me if I could do something as a way of taking this show out, I can only say to all of you each and every day, you can improvise too, because that's really the natural way. And once you realize it's natural, you can use the 12-bar blues if you can't think of any music to play at all. And you'll find that it inspires you as it has for generations to answer your own personal call. You don't have to reverse the charges. You can just make it collect. And you can be there to take the rent. And you can expect that it might be inconsequential to others, but it's a true expression of yourself. And that's most valuable for everybody who wants to be creative. So put those self-help videos on someone else's shelf. You'll be glad to know that that's all I've got to say. We're going to let the young piano player take it away. can only say abianto until the next time. Cheryl, I hope that you continue to be the best vice president or vex president we've ever had. And just speaking with you makes me feel so glad. So folks, remember to hang out with your old friends and you will never ever be terminally sad. Now in conclusion, not to create any confusion, I can only say in that improvisatory Cheryl Praskell way that you're listening to the right show and be sure to tune her in because that's why Marconi invented all this stuff to begin to spread a little enlightenment. We all need that so much. So until we get together again, it's been such a grand, 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 grand plaisir. Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to Folkpod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Folkpod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.